It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome, everybody. So, Richard, from the start of How Do We Fix It nearly nine years ago now, uh, you and I have worked through and sometimes uh, wrestled with a, a kind of difference of opinion, or maybe it's a difference in temperament. You know, I was a philosophy major in college. I like to dig into the philosophical roots of a problem, and I think it's important to understand where bad ideas come from. And I guess I'm in a hurry, Jim and want to get from bad to good fast. Uh, how do we solve problems? How do we ask better questions? But for this episode, at least, I've, I've come around to your way of thinking uh, as we discuss an entire ideology based around identity. We're going to go a little bit deeper than usual and be a bit more <laughs> intellectual. Our guest is Yasha Monk, author of one of the most provocative, interesting books of the year, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. I think it's just remarkable that so far as I'm aware, I'm the only academic who has written an intellectual history of this movement. Um, I mean, whatever you think about it, I think it's clear that it has a significant influence over, over our intellectual life. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? When I was an undergraduate student uh, at university in England in the 1970s, a long time ago, Marxism, or New Marxism, as it was being called at the time, was the dominant ideology on our campus. There was widespread rage among students about the war in Vietnam, the U.S. bombing of Cambodia, and the coup that ousted Salvador Allende in Chile. There were many very noisy student union meetings and protests at college. I was a socialist at the time, which meant that I was right of center because I wasn't a Marxist. Marxism never really took hold politically in the U.S. the way it did in parts of Europe and, and Latin America, but it did get established in the academy. And over the decades since then, it kind of settled into the woodwork and it morphed and it took different forms, especially influenced by some strands of uh, French philosophy that criticized society, structures of power, even our ability to say, what is true. 
in this century, this mix of ideas has kind of hardened into a new ideology that is deeply influential on college campuses on the left. And it's part of what's pushing the Democratic Party to embrace some ideas that would have been very alien just a few years ago. This ideology, or synthesis, as our guest calls it, centers around our personal identity, specifically race, gender, and sexual orientation. These aspects of a person's identity are said to determine their power, their role in society, and how other people see them and even how they see themselves. It's a pretty broad, sweeping claim. This new way of seeing ourselves and our place in the world is affecting everything from our personal lives and relationships to global and national politics. It certainly has a lot to do with the reactions we've seen to events in Israel over the last couple of months. We're going to examine the roots of this ideology, which started with French philosopher Michel Foucault, among others, and also included the post-colonialist teachings of Edward Said at Columbia University, and the leading thinkers behind critical race theory, such as Derek Bell and later Kimberly Crenshaw. They will be mentioned in the interview ahead. Our guest today is Yasha Monk, author of The Identity Trap, a book that looks at the foundations of the ideology and the challenges it represents. Yasha was born in Germany and studied history and government at Cambridge and Harvard. Now he teaches international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. You may know him from his writing in The Atlantic and other publications. He's also the founder of the Substack publication Persuasion and hosts the excellent podcast The Good Fight. Our interview will air in two parts. We pick up first with Yasha and the intellectual beginnings of the identity synthesis. Yasha joins us from Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much. So, you know, I think the first job here is just to define the problem. A lot of people have struggled with this. In the 1990s, a lot of people were worried about uh, a kind of... a intolerant worldview that people call political correctness. Some people who see gender and race, the, the center of, of, our, of our identity, use the word intersectionality. And more recently, a lot of people started using the word woke. But you've come up with a new term. You say that none of the previous definitions really work. Uh, you've come up with a new term, the identity synthesis. Uh, explain. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm not that concerned about what exactly to call it. Um, you know, often we talk about identity politics, which I think is too broad a term. Uh, there are certain forms of identity politics that I think are legitimate, others that I worry about. Um, we sometimes talk about woke, as you uh, mentioned. I think the problem with that is that it's become such a sort of pejorative term that when you go on, go on about woke this, woke that, you sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the clouds. Um, you know, for me, what's important is understanding the ideology that we're dealing with here. A genuinely new political ideology has arisen in academia over the course of the last three or four decades or so, um, and has come to have significant influence in our public life over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. And what I do in the Identity Trap in my new book is to trace the history of these ideas 
to explain how it could have come to have so much influence over mainstream political institutions, to critique some of the main applications of these ideas, to everything from how our kids are taught in many schools in the United States, to notions like cultural appropriation or a new wave of skepticism about the value of free speech, and finally to offer a better uh, philosophically liberal alternative So what are the main claims being presented by the advocates of this identity-based theory? I do think that you can boil this complicated set of ideas with many different themes, different historical origins, down into a set of main claims that most of the advocates of this ideology would in one way or another defend. And that is, first of all, that the most important prism for understanding society is to look at identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. Secondly, that the kinds of universal principles and neutral rules that are enshrined in the United States constitutions and provide the operating system of most liberal democracies are really just an attempt to pull the wool over people's eyes. They are a main reason why we have supposedly not made any progress in overcoming the forms of racism and sexism that have historically characterized those societies. And third, we should therefore get rid of those universal values and neutral rules and make how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us more explicitly depend on the kind of identity categories of which we are a part. You mentioned not only what people who use identity as a way to explain the world are for, but what are they primarily against? Is it the liberal values that you just mentioned? Yes. You know, my book's called The Identity Trap, and every trap has a lure. It has something that pulls you in and that's capable of entrapping even very smart and well-meaning people. Now, the lure in this case is the recognition that our societies have historically been terribly unjust and continue to be unjust in important ways. And the promise that here is the ideology that in the most uncompromising, radical way is going to uh, put its finger on that and fight against that and allow us to create a society in which all of those forms of injustice are in the past. Um, I feel the pull of that, and I think a lot of people have felt the pull of that over the last years. That's the lure or the attraction of framing society's ills in terms of racial, gender, and sexual identity. What about the intellectual criticism of liberal institutions? What were the intellectuals who came up with this theory railing at? From the beginning, the real animus was against philosophical liberals. You see that in um, Michel Foucault, a very subtle thinker who rejects grand narratives, including Marxism and liberalism at the outset. You see that in the post-colonial thinkers from Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak, who uh, see liberals as having justified, as some of them did historically, we have to acknowledge, uh, forms of colonial rule. And you see that very strongly in the main founders of a tradition of critical race theory, and people like Derek Bell, who rejected what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Or in somebody like Kimberly Crenshaw, 
who in reflecting on the 20th anniversary of uh, critical race theory said that Barack Obama, uh, you know, his political philosophy is really fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory. You know, uh, I'm old enough that I actually met Michel Foucault when I was in college, very briefly. And in the 80s, this kind of thinking was so exciting. You know, this idea, this critique of everything, critique of power, critique of assumptions. It was very intoxicating. But you also make the point that it's a mistake to look at the new version of the identity synthesis as just a a version of the 80s, 90s uh, kind of left-wing critique of a, a lot of traditional views. Something new has happened. Some new elements have brought in, and, and, and the movement's gotten an, an enormous intensity that's no longer just confined to undergraduate seminars. So what's different? What happened? Okay, and I think it's just remarkable that, so far as I'm aware, I'm the only academic who has written an intellectual history of this movement. Um, I mean, whatever you think about it, I think it's clear that it has a significant influence over, over our intellectual life. And I think it's, it's an odd thing where the people who support these ideas want to say that they're just obviously true, there's no discussion to be had here. And then the people who criticize it often say, well, this is just an idea, you know, a bunch of stupid ideas that are incoherent, there's no need to actually seriously understand it, at least within academia. So I'm really struck by that. And what's wrong with those conservative critiques? Uh, I do argue in the book that it's not, as some sort of right-wing polemicists call it, a form of cultural Marxism. I think that's just wrong as a matter of intellectual history. It does have its origins in the thought of people like Michel Foucault and in their rejection of uh, claims of universal truth. And actually in their skepticism, ironically, of identity categories. Um, in the fact that Michel Foucault, who in our parlance would be a gay man, uh, didn't like that label, didn't like the idea of homosexuality because he thought it overly constrained as a concept the variety of sexual experiences. But he was skeptical of everything, of a way in which all kinds of discourses could exercise political power, which led to his famous debate with Noam Chomsky saying, you know, this idea that we can know exactly how to make progress is naive because it itself might become oppressive. That all has stayed with us. The deep skepticism about uh, truth claims is still with us in certain respects. And of course, the huge emphasis on political discourse as the real locus of political power is with us. But at the same time, you have then had the post-colonial tradition and the tradition of critical race theory trying to repoliticize Foucault, to get over what so shocked Chomsky, which was its seemingly apolitical upshot, that one set of discourses is as oppressive as the other. And they did that in the post-colonial case by trying to use discourse critique for more explicitly political means, by saying the point is to change discourses, not just to describe them, to uh, make a different kind of illusion. And what you get from that series of intellectual transformations is an ideology that Foucault, I think, would have looked at quite skeptically, even as it derives in a meaningful sense from his work, I think he would say, hang on a second, all of the things I worry about in terms of a simplistic view of a world in which you divide America up, for example, to whites and people of color, uh, all of the sort of forms of social shunning, that is the sort of thing I would have been concerned about in my work. So that's one transformation, I think, where this ideology has been pressed into the service 
uh, of a political cause that would have dismayed Foucault himself. But the second transformation then is that these ideas go from the realm of subtle thinkers that I think are worth engaging with, who I believe are wrong about certain things, but very interesting and smart, to a much more popularized, memified version of this ideology that, that then takes over on social media and in much of a public discourse that, that further simplifies uh, them in a way uh, that, that, that turns these ideas into uh, sometimes cudgels to limit political discussion. Perhaps this is simplistic, but Foucault sounds to me like a nihilist, someone who doesn't believe in anything um, or certainly doesn't believe in any grand narratives to explain our public square. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I uh, on my podcast, The Good Fight, had Noam Chomsky a, a year and a half ago. Um, and uh, he was really shocked by his encounter with Foucault. And even we were recording was pretty much 50 years, uh, nearly to the day after his conversation with Foucault. And he said to me, he was the most amoral, not immoral, but the most amoral man I've ever met. So to a kind of you know, traditional leftist like Chomsky, who has an account of human nature and an account of how he believes sort of capitalism and liberal democracy constrains human nature and an account of how the good kind of society would allow human nature to flourish. You know, Foucault's deep skepticism about our ability to know what human nature is or what it demands or what kind of society would serve it well has remained shocking 50 years uh, later. It is interesting that when you go into many progressive activist spaces today, you know, truths are, even as they sort of disclaim belief in neutral universal truths, even as they teach a kind of hermeneutics of suspicion uh, towards many of our social institutions, they simultaneously make very large truth claims of themselves to say that, um, you know, there's a political wisdom that black and brown people have, that political progress consists in in making children think of themselves as racial beings, that a good political activist has to defer to people of color. There's all of these very confident claims rooted in this identitarian language that have become very influential. Our guest in this podcast, and also the next one, is Yasha Monk, who is the author of the new book, The Identity Trap. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And now, back to our interview. 
To what extent do you think the the recent intensification of of these identity concepts is due or is a reaction to the rise of, of right wing populism and, and Donald Trump and and that whole movement? Well, I, I would distinguish between the ideological roots and what has given them uh, appeal and power in society. If you study intellectual history, the fact that um, ideas turn into something that might have dismayed their original progenitors is very common. And the fact that uh, some of the loudest and most influential advocates of ideas are not the most subtle ones is also a very common theme. I would argue that today when you listen to many of the kind of activist slogans that are influential in our politics, you can see the line of descent from Foucault, Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak, uh, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, even if, uh, uh, you know, in some cases they, they might be quite subtle um, and, and, and sophisticated, and others are going to be a lot less sophisticated. But that's just what you should expect when a political ideology starts to have a broader kind of influence. So why did these series of complicated ideas and intellectual concepts that were first raised decades ago become so well-known, so influential now? I think it has many roots, including the role of social media um, and the fact that universities, and especially university administrators, just started to be are deeply steeped in these ideas and to pass those ideas on to a generation of young, mostly elite students at top universities who then went into the workforce and sort of transformed those places. But it certainly gained its social currency and social power in large part after Donald Trump's victory in 2016. And part of what happened there was a displacement uh, where people originally reacted to Trump's victory by going on the streets to protest against Trump and by hoping that he's going to be impeached and by having Indivisible and the Resistance and the Women's March and all of those kinds of grassroots movement. But as it turned out that uh, Trump was relatively firmly in the saddle as those kind of protest movements started to peter out, as most mass protest movements tend to when they don't succeed, some of uh, their members started to turn their eye inwards. They said, we might not be able to do anything about Donald Trump, but we are able to do something about the member of our moral or social local community who's somehow impure, who has the wrong views, who's done something wrong. Them we have power over, so let's use our power over them. Suddenly, anybody who criticized bad ideas on the left, um, and there's always bad ideas on the left, there's bad ideas in every element of politics, started to uh, be suspected of running secret interference for Donald Trump. You're neither someone strongly of the right nor of the left. You write that your own politics are based on the conviction that principles such as political equality of all citizens, the ability to rule ourselves through democratic institutions, and the importance of individual freedom remain the best guide to building a better future. Why are those principles so important for us to support? Yeah. So, first of all, I mean, I at least biographically and historically, I very much am a man of the left. I joined the German Social Democratic Party when I was 13 years old. I had to lie on my application form 
um, because you're only allowed to join political parties in Germany when you're 14. So I claimed to have been born a year earlier than I was. Um, so I, I would say that I am on on the left, uh, on the universalist left. Um, I guess I would also say that there's two sort of basic uh, axes of of politics, uh, left-right and liberal authoritarian. And I am a philosophical liberal, and that's more important to me. I would rather be friends with a liberal, philosophically liberal conservative than an authoritarian leftist, even though I would put myself on the liberal left. But to a broader question, I think that the debate over the identity synthesis is in significant part a debate over how you see the last 200 years of human history. The claim that the advocates of this ideology make is that we have not made any progress. According to Derek Bell, in the year 2000, America was as racist as, in, as it had been in 1950 or in 1850. Perhaps differently racist, um, perhaps less obviously racist, but as deeply racist as it had been uh, in the era of Jim Crow or in the era of uh, slavery. Which is a shocking claim. It, it is a shocking claim, and I think it, it shows just how much the key figures of critical race theory are way outside the mainstream of the African-American political tradition see themselves explicitly as t picking a fight with the civil rights movement, picking a fight with the mainstream figures in the black political tradition. And are very explicit about that. I mean, Derek Bell was a deep skeptic about Brown versus Board of Education. But if you buy that premise, right, if you buy that in the year 2000, America is as racist as it uh, had ever been, then, then I understand the conclusion. When you say, look, you know, all these universal values and neutral principles, that's just a fig's leaf, right? That's just a pretense. To make progress, we have to get rid of those. Well, I don't agree with that reading of American history. I am on the side of people like Frederick Douglass, who recognized the hypocrisy of their fellow citizens, who in his most famous speech called out his fellow citizens for celebrating the 4th of July and talking about all men being created equal while African Americans were held in, in chains, but who said the way we're going to make progress is to live up to those values. If you're committed to these ideas, then you have to fight to bring American reality into closer alignment with those values. And I think that is how we have historically made imperfect progress. Lots of work remains, but very real progress nevertheless. I think the same is true by the way of gay rights. When you talk to some of the most important figures in the gay rights movement in the last 30 or 40 years, people like Jonathan Rauch, who was one of the first to write an essay defending the idea of same-sex marriage in an American magazine. They always emphasized that the first fight was within the movement against people who were not universalists, who said, you know, we don't want to get married. That's something for, you know, straight people, for breeders, you know. Yeah. We want to explode the institution of... That's far too bourgeois, right? <laughs> and they rightly said, no, we're going to make progress by saying, how is our love different from yours? Why is it that because we happen to love somebody of the same sex, we shouldn't have the same rights and the same protections for our relationships as you do for yours? That's how we made progress. And so if you believe that we have been able to make that progress on the basis of those liberal values, of political equality, of individual freedom, of collective self-determination, then I think 
uh, you end up being a philosophical liberal um, because you recognize that the way to make progress is to have universal values and neutral rules, to recognize when your society fails to live up to it, and to fight for a society in which we come closer to their realization. Yasha Monk joining us on How Do We Fix It? We'll hear more from him in our next episode. Coming up right now, our recommendation. Jim, it's your turn this, this episode to, uh, to, to recommend something. What do you have? I'm going to have to grab it. Give me one sec. <laughs> it's like unwrapping a Christmas surprise. I have no idea what uh, what Jim's about to tell us to, to do or read or watch. Well, you know, you remember book titles, but these long subheads often have, you have to double check. And that's very much the fashion in, in books today. This one's quite a departure from the heady philosophical realm of today's podcast, but it's a really fun and in its own way, a philosophical book. It's called UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there by Garrett M. Graff, very good writer who did a good oral history of 9-11, a good book on Watergate. And here, what Graff tries to do is go through the history of government investigations into reports of UFOs as one strand of of his uh, analysis. So going all the way back to uh, reports coming out of World War II and in the 1940s, and people started reporting flying saucers. It had a huge impact on entertainment and movies. It's a very uh, entertaining but also interesting kind of cultural history. But Graf also, in his other strand of his, the story, is he looks at scientific efforts uh, to uh, and, and government programs to research the possibility of intelligent life or life at all, really, off of Earth. So everything from probes uh, going to Mars and the SETI, the search for intelligent life in the universe using radio telescopes. And it includes a lot of science that I'm interested in, including one of my personal heroes, Carl Sagan, who was both a huge advocate for uh, searching for intelligent life in the heavens and a huge skeptic of the idea that UFOs were visiting the Earth. He was the one who always insisted that we apply our scientific critical thinking to all of these claims. He always used to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So Jim's recommendation is the nonfiction book, UFO, The Inside Story of the U.S. Government's Search for Alien Life Here and Out There. Our conversation about the interview we had with Yasha Monk on his book, The Identity Trap, is next. I think a lot of the most interesting critiques of this style of thinking on the far left are coming from open-minded people on the center left, or you know, are you know mainstream liberals, and and I think that's that's very encouraging. The other thing that that Yasha brings to this is a kind of a good-hearted reading of these sources. I mean, he's not saying, "Oh, throw all this French philosophy in the garbage can; it's all worthless." He's read these authors carefully, but in doing so, he comes back very firmly in defense of these, what I really see as enlightenment values of, of 
democracy, individual autonomy, freedom, that includes free speech. And I think that what I really like about uh, this book is how he, he opens that up for us and helps us understand where it all came from. One of the things that you said, Jim, that really rings true to me is that it's refreshing that some of the strongest criticism of this way of thinking, of, of the identity synthesis, is coming from the center left, because it's exactly how I felt about uh, the rise of Trump and populism on the right, that some of the best analysis is from the center right, not from the center left, um, that the people who have maybe put their reputations on the line and have risked something are some of the most prescient thinkers. And theoretically, our goal as a society should be that we ought to be able to have conversations with a shared set of values and a, a way of establishing sort of shared facts. And what's so insidious about this style of thinking at either extreme is that it rejects the very idea that, that facts can even be established. Yasha said it, how this worldview involves rejecting universal values. I think this is a, uh, a real threat to our ability to talk rationally about morality and to found our morality on some solid foundation. Part two of Yasha Monk coming up in our next episode. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer for nearly nine years is Miranda Schaefer. Many thanks to her. And also thank you to all of our listeners for sticking with us. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 